This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast, I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you doing? Oh, one week's pretty much the same as the next. How about you, Leslie? <laughs> the same. Every day feels the same. This is we're living in Groundhog's Day, right? A uh, little bit Groundhog Day, a little bit uh, Palm Springs. If people have not watched yes. Palm Springs on Hulu. Ah, so good. Definitely a little bit of that. Uh, yeah. And over a Hellmouth still. I'm going to stick with that analogy. Mostly the problem is that the days that feel different almost all feel different because they're awful in different ways. So the days that feel the same are the good days. Anyway, this is getting way too dark and nihilistic. So podcast time. Wee! Yes. And in short, watch, watch Palm Springs. It's very good. It is. Well, let's dive into this week's headlines and out of the doom and gloom. Leading off on broadcast, CBS has committed to improving its diversity and inclusion and has signed a multiple-year content partnership with the NAACP. Over at ABC, the network is planning a big refresh for the 29th season of Dancing with the Stars with Tom Bergeon and Aaron Andrews out and Tyra Banks taking over as host. Oh my god, I thought you said there was going to be no gloom and doom, but that's gloom and doom, Leslie. No, it's not. Okay, fine. It has very little impact on my life. Okay. Yeah. But let's go with positive stuff on the cable side. FX has renewed better things for a fifth season. Yay. On the sad side, HBO has canceled run. Boo. And, well, I mean, only sort of. It was kind of a mixed bag. And Showtime has canceled the Jim Carrey comedy kidding after a two season run. That show was simply too strange for our world. A little bit sad, but I'm sure we'll all get over it. Yes. In streaming news, Netflix has officially picked up Emily in Paris, the comedy from younger creator Darren Starr that was originally poised to air on Viacom's Paramount Network. Over at HBO Max, the streamer has ordered a sketch comedy series starring SNL's Michael Che and is turning the Calm app into its own TV series. Sure. Over at Apple, Idris Elba has signed a first look deal with the tech company, which has also ordered a war drama from Mark Bowl. Over at Disney Plus, they've ordered the Clone Wars spinoff, The Bad Batch, which is an animated Star Wars series that is scheduled to debut next year. And wrapping up the streaming news, Amazon has picked up Hannah for a third season. Whew. Streaming, man. Lots of news. I'm still also hung up on turning the Calm app into a TV show. I would have rather they just turn my regular white noise app into a TV show that would just be all Anyway. <laughs> oh, man, the dad joke, stand. <laughs> That's not even a dad joke. That's just a white noise joke. Yeah. Anyway, on the casting <laughs> front, Kelly Marie Tran has joined the cast of the Hulu anthology Monsterland. And on the development side, Dick Wolf is plotting his expansion beyond broadcast with American Babylon, a Las Vegas set period drama that will be shopped to streaming and premium cable networks. Wrapping up headlines this week, Nick Cannon has been fired from his deal at Viacom CBS and after a lengthy apology on social media, somehow managed to keep his job as the host of The Masked Singer on Fox following a podcast interview in which he made a string of anti-Semitic remarks. Apparently, at The Masked Singer, they don't particularly care if you're anti-vax, they don't care if you're uh, Sarah Palin, and they don't care if you have a long and anti-Semitic rant and life just goes on. Um, as I said on Twitter, I think we have to 
give people the opportunity to apologize for things, and Nick Cannon did apologize. On the other hand, he apologized one day after going on a long rant about how he doesn't believe in apologies because he doesn't think they're sincere. So I'm glad that after that rant about how he doesn't believe in apologies and thinks you can just say whatever, that Fox bought into his apology. Yeah, I guess we're just going to have to go with action, speak louder than words, and stop being anti-Semitic, Nick Cannon. It's not that hard. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get into this week's TV's top five. Number one. Leading off, there's no question that the biggest pieces of TV news this week were sad pieces of news, as fans and the TV community have been dealing with grief and sadness about the death of a couple beloved TV personalities taken from us too soon. Uh, Glee star Naya Rivera went missing at the end of last week, and her body was found at the beginning of this week. She was only 33, which is extremely sad and extremely young, while Mythbusters host Grant Imahara passed away following emergency surgery for a brain aneurysm. Also earlier this week, he was 49. Both very sad news that were hitting a lot of people on social media very hard. Yeah, um, for me, you know, I started my career reporting about Glee. That helped me get covering that show, helped me make the transition from being on the copy desk here at The Hollywood Reporter to being a TV reporter. And I learned a lot about how to cover a beat and to cover breaking news and a lot of things that that show taught me. But the biggest perhaps value I got from that was how to build a relationship. And in covering that show from from start to finish, I got to know a lot of the cast members, Corey Monteith, Naya Rivera among them. And, you know, look, it, it, it pretty much says gay on my forehead if you've seen uh, my photo on Twitter. And every time that I interviewed Naya, she would always ask, like, what do you think? You know, it, she always made it feel made me feel like she took her job extremely seriously and wanted to do right by the LGBTQ community. And this is just it's a big loss, you know, and. You know, uh, our guest columnist, Dorothy Snarker, um, who I had the pleasure of working with way back when as a freelancer for After Ellen, and is probably one of the best culture writers in the LGBT community and just in general, wrote a great piece for THR.com this week about how much Santana, the character of Santana and Naya Rivera save lives. Um, to see a, an out and proud gay character on TV when Glee was at the height of its popularity, this was a show that was a global phenomenon. What that did for this community is it, it just can't be measured. It's a huge loss, not just, you know, for for Glee fans, but she was a talented actress, a, a mother. She saved her last act was to help lift her son to safety. It's just this is it's just a hard one. Yeah, there's there's no question that you go back and you watch those first couple episodes and really the initial reporting on that show. And, you know, it was obviously about Leah Michelle. It was about different actors in the cast. But by the time it got to be the second and the third season of that show, what was keeping me watching that show long beyond when I was overall enjoying the show was how good Naya Rivera and Heather Morris were in that storyline. That that was just a good storyline that was wonderfully and passionately acted by those two actors because the community latched onto those characters, but also because the people making the show realized how good those actors were and how well they were playing that arc. And really, by the time I finally stopped watching Glee, there was no question that Naya Rivera was my favorite part of that show. And so... Yeah, um, it is very sad. The the Glee creators have said that they are establishing a college fund for her young son, and that is that is good of them. But yeah, and if you want to get a better sense of just how much Naya and the character of Santana meant, go on Twitter and search the the hashtag Gay Sharks hashtag. Um, it's a good one, and there's a lot of love on that thread. So, and when it comes to Grant Imahara, he was. I was I was shocked by the amount, the outpouring of love that I saw on Twitter, not because I didn't know that people loved his shows like White Rabbit Project on Netflix and, of course, Mythbusters, but just to see the wide variety of people who 
who latched on to his particular brand of of nerdiness and enthusiasm, his particular and particularly Asian brand of nerdiness and nerd and nerd enthusiasm. Uh, you know, lots of the people who were most passionate and most sad were among my Asian friends and, you know, just the representation that they saw that he brought out. It's, it's one of those things where I hope that I hope he knew how loved he was because heaven knows seeing the outpouring of sadness, just a lot of real love for him and what he represented and what he taught people. And yeah, so a lot of, a lot of sadness about those passings in addition to the chaos of the world. So yeah. Yeah. Our, our hearts go out to both Naya and Grant's uh, family and friends and fans and loved ones. It's both, both are tremendous losses. So there's no particularly good way of transitioning into segment two, but up second, number two, we're going to take our latest in a never ending string of looks at how the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the TV world. So what is new this week, Leslie? Well, this week we saw the first show officially scrapped because of the pandemic. Um, USA Network has abandoned plans for its Evil Knievel miniseries starring Milo Ventimiglia. This was supposed to shoot. They were in pre-production in mid-March. They were supposed to begin filming. I believe it was March 13th, which was the day everything was shut down. The idea was to film Evil during Milo's hiatus from This Is Us. Obviously, that's not going to be able to happen because it's still unclear how production can resume in the U.S., not just in California, where This Is Us shoots. Uh, as I, you know, we sit here, it's, you know, mid-July, I'm hearing possibly an August return for This Is Us. But even that seems un unclear because there's still no clear code of conduct to return, no safety precautions that, that the guilds in the studios have worked out yet. But this is the first of what I think many people are expecting to see of shows that are basically being scrapped. You know, look, USA, uh, their in-house studio, Universal Content Productions, they are going to shop the show to another outlet. Um, the entire cast, save for Milo, has been released. The hope is that if it finds a new home and the cast, the supporting cast are available to shoot when it does go back in, that they will all come back. But Milo is still attached. He's also exec producing it via his production company. So, yeah, that, that's the first piece. You know, the, the second piece, Dan, this is maybe a little bit more in your wheelhouse, too, but CBS <laughs> has tweaked its its quote unquote fall schedule and removed plans for the new season of Survivor, because guess what? Production in Fiji remains a giant question mark. Fortunately, they do have, uh, I believe, an Amazing Race season in the can that is going to be taking its place, right? Yes, um, they bumped up Amazing Race and, you know, they, they also brought back, I think it was SWAT or one of those, uh, one of the, the procedural reboots that, that will was held for midseason and moved everything up. So it's going to be Amazing Race, SEAL Team and SWAT on, on Wednesday nights. But in, in a larger sense, will SWAT and SEAL Team even be ready because they're still you know, a giant question mark regarding production on all of the scripted shows on CBS's quote unquote fall lineup. And I keep saying quote unquote, because they're not going to be able to get any of these shows out the door. And, <laughs> you know, production was supposed to start, you know, on, on new and returning shows the, that usually gets back underway in, in uh, the right around the 4th of July. There's no clear guidelines to resume, especially shows that, sh that shoot here. If you're in Canada, that's another story, but and the, and the thing about the Evil Knievel project that's interesting is one of the things that we often talk about, the advantages of peak TV, is that all of these shows that are no longer needing to do 22 episodes, that things have become smaller in terms of episode orders, well, that's allowed people to do more individual projects. And the advantage of that means that a lot of actors in their hiatuses have been able to do entire TV series in the way that they haven't been able to do before. And that's great. But what happens if your entire hiatus is taken up being under quarantine for a pandemic? And you have a contract to do, hypothetically, something like an Evil Knievel miniseries, and it was supposed to get done, say, between April and May and June. You know, it's not going to be just that one project that was supposed to be done as a kind of in-between hiatus project. There are going to be dozens of those that have, I don't want to say ceased to exist, but the time they were supposed to exist is no longer possible. It's all very 
strange. And we have yet to hear the other sort of blowback thing because people keep talking about how this is going to reduce the shooting window on a daily basis, the number of hours people can work. So it's going to take longer to produce the things anyway. So, yeah. And it works. It's the same for actors as it is writers. The writer on, on Evil Knievel is, I, I'm told, working with Kate McKinnon on the Tiger King, sh- the scripted Tiger King show. So there's a window of availability there. It's the same for, you know, actors, too, because, you know, in this peak world, if the bigger the star you are, the more projects you're juggling, film and TV. So, you know, the idea, you know, of just restarting production and restarting your schedule, it's not that easy in, in this landscape because everything's going to get backed up. You know, even if you get a soundstage, maybe it's it's earmarked for something else at another time. Like it's 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 this is the the the, the dominoes are starting to fall here. So. Exactly. I, you, you, you say dominoes. I was going to go with puzzle pieces. But in any case, these things are all puzzle pieces that were very, very, very precisely and carefully put together to fit into breaks in one production or another. And now everything is a huge, huge mess. And it's going to suddenly become basically the priority is going to go to anything that is actually able to go into production. But I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows how long anything's going to be able to stay in production. So anyway, so what other dominoes are there this week? Because it isn't just this. Right. The the other interesting piece, and we've been monitoring this story for a little while, is you're starting to see productions move out of the U.S. And and look, Runaway Production has been a, a recurring thread in our industry for a long time because there are tax incentives that make filming abroad more appealing. There's more tax rebates, et cetera. And we saw this week that our, our correspondent from Canada reported that ABC has moved its David E. Kelly drama series, The Big Sky, from its planned location shoot in New Mexico and Nevada to Vancouver, where conditions are considerably better and production, I'm told, is expected to begin either this week or next week or this month, which is more than anything's going to be happening here, at least in the at least in Los Angeles, where we, it remains a hellscape. So, yeah. And how long any of the places that are currently OK are going to be able to stay OK is an entirely different question, because I mean, even send th- me to New Zealand, Dan. There's nothing going on. There's no restrictions. There's no covid there. Okay, fine. Let's all go to New Zealand and then we can start recording our podcast in person again. And that would be great. Uh, New Zealand is New Zealand is very lovely. They have uh, they have both hobbits and penguins. How can you beat that? Right. Exactly. Well, that's the latest, uh, you know, in how COVID has been impacting our industry. Um, It's, again, continuing things to monitor as the landscape continues to change. So that takes us to our third segment. Number three. Up third, news broke late last week that HBO Max is readying a TV spinoff from Warner Brothers' upcoming Batman feature film starring Robert Pattinson. The TV series will hail from screenwriter Matt Reeves and Boardwalk Empire alum Terrence Winter. And the show will be, like the film, set in Gotham City and operate in the same universe that has Jeffrey Wright playing the role of James Gordon. We don't know if Jeffrey Wright will will reprise that role in the TV series, but it certainly sounds as if that's where they're they're headed. But yeah, it's it's an interesting strategy, Dan. It, it is. And depending on how you look at it, certainly my immediate reaction was the fairly cynical, oh, uh, you know, classic HBO showrunner is bringing a Batman TV series without Batman set at the Gotham PD to TV. That sounds a lot like Fox's Gotham. And it does to some degree. Several people on Twitter immediately said, ah, no, no, no. It sounds more like the Gotham Central comic series, which it does, except for the fact that no one said that's actually what this is going to be. There's a specific brand that's Gotham Central. If they wanted to announce it as that, they could have. The key difference here is the actual tie in to the cinematic franchise, which Gotham never was able to have. Gotham was doing all of these things in parallel to, at various different times, the end of the Christopher Nolan Batman franchise, the rise of whatever was happening with Ben Affleck for a couple movies, et cetera, et cetera. But it was never tied into the cinematic universe. Right. Just like the CW shows are never tied into the DC universe that from the from the feature film universe, even though all of these shows are are connected on the on the TV side, they have zero connection to the feature side, except for when Ezra Miller popped up randomly in the uh, in one of the crossovers last year, which tied it in with the cinematic universe, which was a confusing decision on at least three or four different yeah, levels. Stunt casting, yeah. It, but it's it still is odd, and and it's 
the question of when you feel like this is a thing that's worth doing versus a thing that's not worth doing, like the early seasons of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC, where it was where basically they would bring in the most random of people with absolutely nothing that you could remember to do with the film franchise to pop up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. just so that they could be like, ah, it's all connected. Well, it's sort of listen, kinda. if you're going to say it's all connected and you're not going to quote the great Jeff Loeb by saying it's all connected. And I'm being sarcastic because Jeff Loeb is no longer with Marvel. As, but, as Jeff yeah, Loeb would nothing say, was connected. it's all connected. It, but it was nothing really was stupid. connected. But ever, but there was there was an episode with Kobe Smulders and there was totally if memory serves, there was even an episode with Samuel L. Jackson at the very end of it. I feel as if that was a thing that happened, uh, but it added nothing and ultimately that show ended up becoming a much better show at least so far as i hear when it just became kind of its own thing so yeah this this is a this is a thing that's they keep trying to do and no one has exactly perfected it <laughs> right i i would make the case that i think disney plus is probably a, the closest we can get to to making the most out of this strategy because they're they pulled out the Mandalorian from the Star Wars franchise, and they made that show with the same production value, the same scope, the same. It seems like relatively a high budget comparatively to the uh, what a what a Star Wars movie is. And then when you look at they're they're doing the same thing with Marvel, and it's not just these supporting characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that you're know, like, oh, this tiny person's going to get its own spinoff. But it's literally the stars of some of, of of some of those franchises are getting their own TV shows. I mean, it's a it's a smart strategy that that really just continues to kind of blur the line between film and TV and probably beef up that that service, you know, and it's actually a question that I asked Bill McGoldrick, who heads originals for Peacock, which launched this week to see if that was something that that they were looking at, you know, you know, because look, the Fast and the Furious is is arguably Universal's biggest uh, feature film tentpole and franchise. So where's the live action Fast and the Furious scripted show? And I asked McGoldrick that, and he basically said that he's constantly in conversations with the film unit topper, Donna Langley, and their group, and ha that he does have a, a wish list of titles that he, that he hopes. But start the timer on when you're going to see that Fast and the Furious TV show. It's just, it's a lot to expect anyone to be able to do to coordinate those things. I, I think that probably when Marvel started off with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they really went into it with an earnest belief that they could tie it in with the cinematic universe and they just kept falling on their faces with it. And then they'd built the Netflix universe of all the shows that were interconnected. And I don't know, you can judge how, how connected they were. I feel like to whatever degree that was a moderate success. I don't think it was a rousing success, but it was a moderate success. Uh, but then you also remember ideas like the ambitious plans for uh, Dark Tower, and how it was at some point going to be this massive feature followed by a massive multi-year television series connected then to at least one possibly more massive features. And then the first movie was savaged, tanked, basically killed the connected TV series. Then they tried doing an unconnected TV series, right? That I was think then, so. It's so confusing. I, th I think it was then scrapped. I think they basically said they decided they were going to try it again and they were going to uh, basically kind of start from scratch, which was probably the right idea. I don't think anyone was so beholden to the idea of the world created in the Dark Tower movie. Um, and then yeah, and earlier this year, Amazon also ultimately passed on the Dark Tower TV series from Walking Dead grad Glenn Mazzara. Exactly. And so yeah. it ended up being nothing. And so, and so yeah. basically all a it lot takes, of money that they spent. And we and we talk again about dominoes and puzzle pieces. All it takes for is for one of those dominoes to go off. And suddenly when you've connected everything, like if you have an elaborate plan to have a spinoff TV series around a character and then it turns out that people don't respond well to the character in the movie. Oh, my God. Well, there goes your idea. Whereas, on the other hand, do, I, do you think that Disney wouldn't mind having a Baby Yoda movie right now? Of course they would. You know, they would they would love anything that would give them more money, I think. Yeah, especially a, right now. You know, and, and look, it, it, and it works both ways, too. You know, SpongeBob is getting a theatrical film. So is Bob's Burgers. The Walking Dead is going to get at least three feature films with Andrew Lincoln. I mean, it's not a new practice of rebooting of rebooting films and TV series and vice versa with things like Miami Vice and so many others. But what is interesting is how they're using these big feature film hits, massive hits to help build up 
the streaming service and to build interest in the streaming service. And most of these, of course, are subscriptions. So they're, it's all about chasing your money. So All about uh, chasing money and connecting things so that you have to pay multiple times just to be able to see the same story spread out across multiple mediums. It's all it's all ways of getting more of your money. And what a glorious age we live in, in which those media streams are constantly open and connected to your wallet. Yep. Well, with all that said, let's move on to our next topic. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Number four. Up next is our showrunner, Spotlight. Joining us this week is Katori Hall, the creator of one of the summer's most acclaimed show, P-Valley on Stars. The series is currently certified fresh with a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It tells the story of a group of strippers at a joint in the Mississippi Delta, and it is based on Hall's play Pussy Valley. Her previous theatrical credits have included The Mountaintop, Hurt Village, and the book for the musical Tina. Thank you for joining us, Katori. I am so happy to be here. (laughs) Now, had you always had a sense in your mind that Pussy Valley was a play that you wanted to revisit, to expand, to turn into something more beyond just the play? Well, I must say I wasn't hit (laughs) with the idea of turning into a TV show until I actually saw it in its play version. Like I was watching it and you know how plays are very particular parentheses. There's this beginning, there's this end and you got to, you know, ride the roller coaster in between it. But boom, that's all you got. So what should have been maybe two hours and 15 minutes was like three hours and 15 minutes. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. (laughs) We got too much going on. Like these characters, they got legs for days, like literally and figuratively. So I needed to bust them out of the parenthesis, which was kind of a cage. And, And so I very quickly pivoted and pitched it around town. And luckily, Stars was like, yeah, (laughs) you got a lot going on. I remember at my pitch meeting, I just kept on going on and on in terms of all these story ideas I had. And and I remember Chris Albert was like, stop, 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 stop. Okay, I got it. (laughs) So um, it always was just so full and and just was screaming to um, have a longer form platform. And so I I was very blessed to be able to link up with this amazing network who really saw, you know, what I was trying to do, which was to put forth this humanized that this like um humanizing portrait of of dancers. You know, and you mentioned that you pitched this to Chris Albrecht, who of course is no longer there. It is now the network is now overseen by by Jeffrey Hirsch. But how did how if or did the show change at all? With that regime change, I mean, were there did Jeffrey Hirsch tell you anything like, oh, I lean into this or I mean, the title no, notably changed from Pussy Valley to P Valley. Was that did that play any kind of a role with the regime change? I will say in terms of the regime change, it was very much like Lecatory do what she wanted to do. Like let the black woman tell the, the this story about these black women who are dancing down in the Delta. Like they were very, very um, respectful in terms of my artistic process and I was like I said so blessed to just have the support and quite frankly you know they have Courtney Kemp over there they had Tanya Siracho so they're used to you know women showrunners of color and so I was you know stepping into a family atmosphere almost um in terms of that title change though um that was a discussion we had from jump initially everybody was on board they were like okay we're gonna call it Pussy Valley you know that's what the play is called that's what the show's gonna be called however there was this conversation with the the cable carriers um with comcast with time warner and those people were like oh hell no (laughs) we are not (laughs) going to put a show with pussy in the title on our platform and so it was a business decision um we didn't want to make this amazing show that we really felt everyone needed to see and and you know people not be able to see it because they didn't they wouldn't have access to it because you know 
it wouldn't be anywhere to be found. Um, yeah, I mean, so, it's hard enough to find a show in the peak TV era. It's even harder if you don't yes, have TV Yes, yes. And so it was really about access. Like I said, definitely a business decision. And I think a good business decision. Well, and I mean, it makes sense. And I can see how that would be a thing that would come up. But I'm kind of curious as to how it hadn't come up with the play, like had how no one had said, OK, we can't advertise this in newspapers. We can't advertise this in certain cities, for heaven's sake, something like that. I must say uh, the reviewers always printed the title. Um, and I don't know if that's because theater, you know, is like we, you know, real liberal. I actually don't think theater is as liberal as TV, but um, there was just this embracing of of what I wanted to title my play. And and I think that's the reason why we really thought we were going to be able to move forward with the TV show as the same title. But, you know, like I said, uh, Comcast wasn't having it. So. (laughs) (laughs) And was there anything else that caused executives at Stars to to flinch at all in terms of the topicality? Anything that you wanted to approach or do with this world? At Stars, no. I will say that there were a lot of discussions about um, the nudity. And, you know, as a black woman who has inherited, I would say, this big old box of hypersexualized images uh, about myself. And so I knew that I was stepping into some, you know, tricky terrain, like landmines. And I was so sensitive to that fact and and wanted to make sure that if we were going to you know embrace the nudity we had to be authentic but we had to be careful and tasteful and so the nudity was always used as a way to further plot development to you know just just show the authenticity of the world like we tried so much not to be gratuitous at all and um but there were a lot of discussions about you know how how honest we could be um because i was always about authenticity like that's why i spent six years researching this world and talking to over 40 dancers but and you know all those dancers were you know sometimes i would be interviewing them and they would have their tops off because i would be in the in the back of the club with them and so with my own eyes i saw that this was just a part of the world um but we had some ground rules that we laid out when it came to visually articulating the nudity I believe we will have to ask what some of those ground rules were exactly. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, for example, I would say the show is really centered in the female gaze. And we wanted to always make the audience feel as though they were placed in the, you know, the high heel platforms of the dancers. And when it came to making the audience feel what the dancers were going through, um, we just made sure that we were like really up close on faces instead of really up close on nipples. <laughs> like, you know, as a matter of fact, I feel like, you know, one of the the first like nipples that we see in 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 episode one is of a, a, a young mother breastfeeding her child. Like boobs make money, but they also feed babies. That's, you know, <laughs> that's the point of the show. It's like, you know, these women are 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 using their bodies, yes, um, to to provide for for not only themselves but for families. But we, it's it's this it's it's about the, the humanity of them, and you know, the, the nudity is part of their jobs. Yeah, it almost felt at, at a number of times like a family drama. It just so <laughs> happens to be set in this community. Absolutely, it's funny. I love that you say that because it feels to me like a workplace drama but then the fact that there's a sisterhood there's this really family atmosphere and so i call it a family workplace drama because it's like these friends that become your family that become your sisters and that's what i i saw all the time when i was backstage with these women now you'll have to tell me is this my perception because the first episode leslie was a little bit ahead of me in watching and leslie was like "Ooh, lots of nudity and i'm like wait there's not actually all that much real nudity in the first episode then the second episode starts with a penis in the first shot of the uh, the second episode (laughs) and it felt to me like you kind like there was sort of a okay we're gonna ease you into the world and then gradually we're gonna be more frank or graphic however you want to put it did that feel like your intent no, I, 
I will say, I think because in the first episode, it was really about setting up the storylines and the fact that, you know, we're weaving in and out of the club. And so you, you do see some nudity, particularly I, I know there's that scene in the champagne room where, you know, they're all topless and, and with Autumn Night and Mercedes. Um, but I must say it really wasn't about making an audience feel comfortable or or even making the network feel comfortable. It was really about when do I need the nudity? When is the nudity required? If I don't need it, then I don't need to show it. That's kind of what the rule was. But it's funny because the perception of stars is that it's a network that sometimes in the past has been made fun of a little bit for gratuitous nudity. Yeah, I think um, someone had like a, you know, a, a, a timer for every star show for when they showed any form of, of nudity. And it was no like, there's nudity within the first 10 minutes of almost everything on stars or something like that. It was a few years ago. Someone did that. But um, oh, I got to see but that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just leading leaning into to Dan's comment. I mean, I don't know that this show could have lived on any other network other than stars. And you quite pay, frankly, around town too, I, I, I was just to. about to tell you so I pitched it around town there were some networks and streamers who would not even let me inside the dough to pitch it what not they were like oh we know you could tour how but no we we ain't touching no show about no strippers N- name name names girl name, I name, can't names. name names I'm not I'm not even gonna give them that shine we're not even gonna <laughs> give them that shine but uh I will say um I think the the show is so at home at stars, but more from the fact that they are just supportive of of yeah. the vision, the humanization vision. I, and you know, premium cable, we you know, you you go on HBO, you can you, and look at Sopranos and be in the bada bing. Even though, as in my opinion, that's a very objectified version of the strip club world. Um, but you know, stars is premium cable, and I think that's what happens on a premium cable show. They do embrace um, more nudity. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. than other places. You know, just piggybacking off of uh, the, the nudity conversation here. I mean, talk a little bit about the casting process for this show, considering the amount of nudity that is required, not just for women, but for men as well. Um, and then, of course, you've got skim- you're, you're casting people in, in who are going to be not just with nudity, but in skimpy costumes, but then who are also have to learn or probably at least have some kind of basic understanding of how to pole dance. I mean, that's a that's a, a, a it's very a lot of requirements hard role for this show, particularly for the women. Um, I looked at thousands of tapes, thousands. I had an army of casting directors in addition to, you know, our lead casting directors. I scoured the ends of the earth because I wanted to get them so right. These women that I had spent those six years with who had, you know, opened up their hearts to me. I had been in in the backstage with them. I had met their families and I just knew that I needed to find actresses who could be who could look like a stripper, dance like strippers, be comfortable with their bodies, but also be vulnerable because that's what I was met with in in those backstage moments and had acting ability and yeah. and had all of that and, <laughs> and and it's so funny. So you know, I went to Juilliard, I went to uh, Moscow um, Art Theater School for acting, and so I know a good actor. I know a re- I, I know about some good ass acting, and so um, my my number one requirement always was the acting. And that's why I looked at that many tapes. It was, I would say, an eight month long process. And I was just just determined to to, you know, hit the bullseye when it came to matching the, the actors with the characters. And so I remember when Brandy Evans came in, who plays Mercedes, she walked into the audition room and I swear it was like. She was Mercedes, like when the words start coming out of her mouth and I was like, oh, my gosh, she knows the accent. She understands this woman's soul and she can dance her ass off. So Brandy actually is a trained dancer. Like she used to like dance background for Katy Perry, like Snoop Dogg, like crazy, crazy dance skills. And so, you know, part of the the audition process was that the women had to do a little a little uh 
you know, cut a rug in, in the room. And I, you know, she did her, her scenes and then she hit them splits later. And I was like, she understands, you know, the yeah. needs and requirements for the show. And obviously, but did you ever have anyone who, who said no, like when they, when they came in and they were, or they, you know, did you go out and make any offers to people who, who were turned off by the nudity that re- that was required? I must did say, have, we, like, was we there didn't, any challenges? We didn't necessarily. Aside from the volume of tapes? Yeah. I mean, we. Uh, so the thing about me is that I love to break actors and I really did not want to have name actors in the roles because I wanted it to feel almost like a documentary. Like you were this fly on the wall looking in and. So I didn't want it to be like Denzel plays Uncle Clifford, <laughs> you know, because I was like, people are going to be like, oh, my God, Denzel played Uncle Clifford. I, you know, I wanted it to feel so real. Um, and, and so we decided not to go the celebrity route, you know, in regards to the actor who plays Uncle Clifford. Nico actually has been with the role for 10 years. He actually read the first four pages, four or five pages that I I wrote in the play form because he was an actor in in New York City. And so I would invite people over to my house and we would like get together on Monday nights and just read people's plays. And so he from Jump has been the actor I think that I've been writing Uncle Clifford for. And so he also originated the the role of Uncle Clifford um, in the stage play version. And so it's crazy that I had someone who had been with me in the trenches in addition to, you know, meeting all these new um, actors and actresses during the audition process. And Nico Anand is absolutely fantastic as Uncle Clifford. And and I, I found that character so refreshing because you don't really see an out gay character who is just like, I mean, I, I'm struggling to kind of put a label on him and I'm just let me take that back. You, you don't often see a character who can't be defined like this. So. Exactly. Uncle Clifford cannot be defined. And yes. I love it. Like, you know, Uncle Clifford is gender fluid, um, non-binary, but prefers the pronouns she. I think that if Uncle Clifford grew up, you know, in New York City, Uncle Clifford would be like, I'm a they, I'm a they. But, you know, we down south and that kind of language really has, a, you know, um, become part of the, the culture or the lexicon when it, it comes to talking about um, non-binary people. And so I just feel as though Uncle Clifford is is so special and so unique, particularly at this time. Uh, people are always and, ask and me particularly like, seeing that character in the Mississippi Delta. In the, in the South South. Exactly. Yes. And people always ask me like, you know, how in the hell did you come up with Uncle Clifford? And Uncle Clifford is a fusion of three of my living ancestors. My mama, who don't take no shit. Uh, my daddy, who also don't take no shit, but is very, very loving and nurturing. Not that my mama ain't, but, you know, he, I'm like, daddy, you know, give me some money. I get it from him. Right. And then Uncle Clifford is um, my real Uncle Clifford. And and he, you know, he's not, you know, non-binary, gay or whatever, but he has this sassiness and and this way of like reading you for filth one second and and giving you a kiss on the forehead the next which is so the fictional uncle clifford and so it's something that i do in all my work where i I take a a a living relative and i i bless a character with their name because it's a way for them to to be a monument a moving monument in my work well does nico's experience with this character in the 10 years that he's put in with this character does it mean that there was a certain leadership role that nico was able to take on the set uh, I, I definitely with think experience? absolutely i think it you know he definitely uh by nature as a human being is incredibly nurturing himself we call him the mama bear you know nico identifies as being a, a gay man um but he definitely has uh motherly tendencies when it comes to our circle of friends our our theater collective and you know he he stepped into those high heel platforms of uncle clifford with pride and understanding and so really became a sounding board for the actors who didn't necessarily understand the the accent <laughs> because you know part of the Katori Hall universe is always some slanguage uh, as I like to call it it's like this this distinct mixture of accent and 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 dialect and slang and lexicon and so he would always tell people 
trust the text. Just say the words. And if you say the words, I promise you, you're going to become the character. And I, I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, everybody would have done that had it not been for Nico saying, just, you know, just say what she wrote, y'all. Just do it. And I promise you, it'd be good. Well, you mentioned the specificity of the language, and it is so very specific and so very theatrical as well. When you walked into the room and pitched this, was it always something that you made clear I'm running this. This is my show. You're not putting someone else in. You're not taking my script and then putting someone else in charge of it, letting someone else steer it. It's mine. You know, absolutely. Um, I think there I, I will admit there was a conversation about, you know, what do we do to make sure that everybody understands every word? And I was like, no, 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 no. They ain't going to understand every word. And that's absolutely fine. You know, I think about The Wire. I think about that amazing introduction of the Snoop character where I was like, what in the hell did she say? I like that be more sound, like just so, so boom, hitting the bullseye so that people from be more Baltimore could be like, yes, we talk like that. And that's what I wanted the show to be for people who are from um, Mississippi and what I call Memphis-sippi, which is like, you know, Memphis, uh, which is so close to being in, in Mississippi that it should be in, in Mississippi. Like I wanted folks from there to be like, oh, my God, she got my accent right. She got what we say, how we interact with each other, like so right because I feel like people just really want to be seen and quite frankly heard and so I grew up always being like the only one in in a white space and oftentimes I had to to change my lingo so that others might feel comfortable so that others might understand me but I'm just like I'm done with that I, I feel as though our our tongues, our mother tongues are so beautiful, the way that we communicate. It's music. And I really wanted people to hear that music. And and, and thank God Stars was on board for that, because I do remember there was a there was a conversation that was had that I never was a part of where they were like, oh, my God, should we do subtitles? And I was like, because subtitles would be racist. <laughs> no, the, the first, the first time I heard English. a character mention stacks, I was like, wait, stacks. What, what is it? And then I kept watching. I'm like, oh, it's money. I mean, yeah. you know, it, 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 and I'm, but it was also just I'm glad that that you didn't didn't cave into what stars was suggesting or any of these these you know notes like that. But it brings that authenticity to it. And, and it feels so much like you're just in that world. And it for me, you know, I, I like I mentioned earlier, we I consume this whole season Thankful, I'm lucky to have the screeners, but I watch the whole thing in a weekend. And it's just, you just want to stay in this world and know these people. A show about strippers is not something that I would normally gravitate toward, but a family drama 100% is. And that's what I think this, this show is, as we mentioned before. But the other piece that, that we, um, I did want to mention too is, you know, we're watching this during a pandemic where physical contact, you're just like, oh my God, the first scene that I saw in the strip club, I'm just like, that is like ground zero of where I don't want to be right now. Yeah. But then you're watching all, you know, these characters, like the physical contact may be almost more uncomfortable than the lap dancing did. So can you talk a little bit about having viewers see this show right now in this space? And then ideally, knock on wood, you, you know, your, the reviews have been great. Hopefully you get a second season. How do you film a second season of this during COVID? Ooh, child, Leslie, I don't know how we film a second season of this in a pandemic. <laughs> but I will say that I I truly think it's going to resonate um, because we have lost that connection, that, that physical connection with a lot of people. And the fact that a lot of strip clubs did shut down. Um, and so this thing of, you know, physical intimacy, sexual intimacy, people are are craving. And so I think that's why this show is such an escape and almost nostalgic <laughs> at the same time, because we have, you know, months and, you know, you, I said years to go before we can actually gather in spaces and experience live performance safely. So this show is really going to, you know, hit people in the eyes and the guts and the mind in so many different ways. And I... I would love to move forward with a second season, but there's so much to figure out. You know, this 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 virus is it's not going away anytime soon. 
And, you know, people are really, really trying to figure out and doing mental gymnastics about how we can start up production um, quickly and safely. But um, I must say, I don't necessarily want to be the guinea pig because I I just don't want anyone to 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 get sick or, or possibly die on my watch. Yeah, it also feels like maybe this is a show that does kind of what the NBA is trying to do, where you kind of quarantine in a bubble and film the whole thing like that way. But but in, in success, I mean, do you have an, a, a long term goal for how long you would like to see P-Valley run? So, like I said, when I was pitching it to stars, you know, they were like, stop, stop, stop. I had five years in my brain, five wow. years. And I know where every character lands how how the stories end i just pray that wow. i get that opportunity yeah and then with all the attention um that the show is getting like i said the reviews have been been overwhelmingly positive 100 percent on rotten tomatoes have you had any kind of conversations with stars or anyone else for that matter about an overall deal and maybe expanding to another another a second show um i've begun conversations <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, really amazing. It's 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 nice to get the shine. It's nice to get the that's great know, the validation, the pats on the back. But I just have so many stories to tell, and so I would be grateful to expand uh, the Katori Hall universe. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned the Bada Bing as the sort of quintessential HBO strip club, I guess. And my sort of perception of that club always was, man, that would be a really sad place to spend an afternoon. Whereas the club you have here does not give that impression. It gives the impression that it's a lively, fun place where maybe sometimes bad things happen, but still a fun place. I'm particularly curious about the athleticism of the dancers at this club, because that is where the biggest contrast comes to me. I think it's in either the second or third episode where you get to the the synchronized solo pole dancing. And I was like, my God, I've never seen that before. And I can't imagine the amount of core strength that's required to do that. How much (laughs) did you want to kind of raise the bar on what our expectations were for this kind of environment? So what a lot of people don't know is that black Southern strip clubs are a theatrical experience. Like, when I was growing up, I would go inside these clubs and I would see these women flying around on these poles like they were super heroes. It was... (laughs) enthralling and it just tattooed itself on my mind you know and you know forward you know flash forward 10 years I'm trying to get my body together I'm going to these pole fitness classes I'm trying to get you know in shape trying to emulate what these women were doing and my ass could not do it because <laughs> it's so hard and it demands respect because it is a craft it is a sport and so because I even attempted to do it, I understood, you know, just from my own experience, how hard it was. And so I would say that was always uh, the, the number one goal to make sure that the audience understands that this is work. And yes, not not every strip club has that sort of theatrical experience. But like I said, there are a lot of black Southern strip clubs that do. Um, Magic City is one of them. Black Diamonds is one of them. The King of Diamonds, which is, you know, unfortunately, um, it's it's no longer there. But like, there's just a culture that people know about. And it's it's just so interesting that this show is shining this this very hot um, spotlight on something that we actually grew up, you know, going to see and participating in. And so, yes, I do agree that a lot of visual articulations of strip clubs tend to be very sad and seedy and downtrodden. Um, and, and that's not to say that, you know, like you said, bad stuff don't happen at the tank. It do. And y'all going to see <laughs> in a few episodes <laughs> that bad things do happen. Um, but it, it's this amazing mixture of celebrating women's bodies, but more so celebrating what women's bodies can do. Well, you mentioned you cast actresses with dancing experience, but what were their reactions to what they were being asked to do here on just on a purely physical level? Like what surprised them about what they were doing? A lot of them were scared because they were like, I'm I'm never going to be able to flip my entire body weight upside down and stand on a ceiling. (laughs) And we were like, girl, you ain't got to do that. We're going to get some stunt doubles. (laughs) You know, there were levels to what was required of them. Um, And so they embarked on a very strenuous boot camp. They took pole dancing classes. Our amazing choreographer, Jamaica Craft, she, I would say, diagnosed each 
actress and was like, okay, you need to work on this. You need to work on your flexibility. And so even before they got to Atlanta, which is where we were shooting, um, they were already working on their weaknesses. So when they got there and, you know, we put them all in the studio together and um, they they really worked hard to, to get to the the best level that they could get to. And so uh, with the choreography, we would, you know, shoot the actresses and then slide in the body doubles and then in the edit, just make it seamless. So, okay, is there is there more or less body doubling than we would guess? Because I sort of, in my mind, I just I just erased it and I went along with the whole thing. I'm so but, glad. <laughs> and that's how, that's what a, I, yeah, thank God. Shout out to the editors because they, <laughs> they made that real smooth. Like, you can't even tell. There's way more body doubling. <laughs> so so <laughs> how many, that. like backup dancers do you have or or i mean i guess that's the question yeah i mean do you call them backup dancers what are they yeah so we have a core of five background dancers and those five actually came from atlanta strip clubs and so they brought the authenticity the twerking they was teaching our gals how to walk a floor you know and twerk at the same time i mean they came in and and passed over some skills um each dancer each rather each actress had two body doubles um because it it required that because you're going to burn out your your dancers if you uh don't, don't have a backup so eight you know backup dancers and then our core who you see particularly in episode two uh, take over the stage chinette actually is the the main girl who walks in with that fur coat and takes over the pole and she used to dance at magic city actually she may still (laughs) be dancing at magic city now going back you talked about the sort of idea of reclaiming this space for the female gaze and you talked about the the difference between basically focusing on faces and focusing on nipples and and what that can do when you walked in with the pitch was the pitch always we will have only female directors on this and this is important because dot 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 in terms of the pitch, I did not come in and say, I'm going to have all female directors because it was just so far down the line <laughs> in terms of, of development. Um, but I must say, once we got to that place, when it was time to think about, OK, who's going to helm these episodes, you know, especially if this is about the female gaze, I will tell you, I tried to hire men. I was open um, and I would just ask this one simple question. What is your definition of the female gaze? And unfortunately, the men never really had an answer. So I was like, I cannot hire you. I can't even talk to you no more. Like, go to the no pile. <laughs> like, because that was the goal. Um, the women came in and, you know, they had already been dealing with um, pushing up against hypersexualized images in their own work. And so when they came to the table with ideas about how we were going to make sure that we were centering the women's experiences, I just it, it was a no brainer. Like these eight women are going to um, put lay their hands on this show and and move it towards this this uber goal of making sure that it's all about the female gaze. Um, one thing I did want to follow up on is, you know, you have uh, you cast Isaiah Washington, who plays a corrupt and homophobic city official. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any concerns with casting him, considering that he was fired from Grey's Anatomy for calling a, ho- a co-star a homophobic slur? I mean, it feels almost when when I saw that, I was like, first of all, he's almost unrecognizable. And second of all, I was like, oh, wow, that's really on the nose. I must say, I really focused on him being the best actor for the part in terms of his history and and what he has gone through. I do feel as though people make mistakes. And obviously, we had our our own conversations about, you know, how he truly, truly feels. Um, And so I, I feel as though people should get a second chance. And and I really felt as though, you know, Beyond his political leanings, beyond uh, what he's gone through, um, he was the perfect person for the role. And I really have enjoyed working with him. Now, sort of continuing with the cast idea, there are a few variably recognizable names. But did at any point someone at Stars say, can we just get one role for name the ingenue who wants to revise her, you know, Disney star X who wants to change up her career by being in a star's drama about strippers, that kind of thing. No, because I would not have it. (laughs) 
<laughs> for me, it's always, are you the perfect person for the role? Does your soul align with this character's soul? That's it. And so this whole idea of, like, as I call it, star fucking, I was like, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> well said. Um, well, we, we do always like to end our interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? You know what? Y'all gonna laugh at me. Or maybe not. Maybe y'all won't laugh at me. I No I, judgment here. <laughs> no, we're not gonna laugh. I've been watching The Babysitter's Club. It is so good. <laughs> it is so good. You know, I obviously I've been watching a lot of cartoons because of my kids. And so The Babysitter's Club is this interesting, like it's a level up because it's not for a six-year-old per se, but it's it's I thought it was it's so well done. It's not talking down to to young women. I feel as though the perspective is fresh and contemporary. And I was a huge fan of those books. So I've really, I've been um, doing some some cleaning and, and whatnot and watching The Babysitter's Club. It's, it's the antithesis well, to, your... to P-Valley. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was what I was going to say is, is do your, do your own viewing preferences, do they tend towards the more wholesome to sort of keep a separation between your writing and what you're actually enjoying when you need to escape? I just, I try to take in everything. I love watching everything. And I, I particularly love watching how, um, just narratives around women and young, young women. So I think that's probably why I was drawn to the Babysitter's Club, specifically. <laughs> I can absolutely put them together as two different sort of female-driven stories of sisterhood, if you want to go with that. I think they're probably compatible texts. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> I love that. Well, Katori, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, new episodes of P-Valley air Sundays at 8 on Stars. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, guys. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Dan, we're starting to approach the slowdown that we feared was coming sooner rather than later. And it's here. Um, you've got a number of new series debuting this week, but then coming up, it, it's getting kind of bleak. So this week, you've got Cursed on Netflix, TNT's The Alienist sequel, the final season of Corporate on Comedy Central, and the return of United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. Dan, what you got? It is definitely a mixed bag this weekend. Um, in terms of actual quality, the best new thing you can watch this weekend without any question is United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell, uh, which is going to, I believe, its fifth season and has long been one of TV's most perceptive shows when it comes to issues of race and class and how they intersect in contemporary America. And guess what? It turns out this is a very timely time for that show to be returning. In fact, probably the show never should have left for as long as it did. Uh, I've seen the first two episodes of the new season. The premiere on Sunday focuses on white supremacy, which has long been one of uh, Kamau's favorite <laughs> topics. The first episode, if you'll recall, of the entire series included him going to a KKK rally, which is repeated multiple times throughout this episode, which takes place largely in and around Pittsburgh and focuses on racism, systemic inequality, but also anti-Semitism for reasons that you can probably imagine. And uh, yeah, it, it just hits hard. And then the second episode, which focuses on small town farmers in the United States, is perhaps a better example of how well the show does with slightly smaller stories and bringing those stories into interesting relief. So it's really good series. Definitely always worth checking out. Uh, what else is there? I need to look at my watch repeatedly to make sure this is going to go up after the embargo for Cursed because the embargo on reviews is day of premiere. Sometimes that's a bad sign. Here it's kind of a negligible sign. This is a uh, TV series, 10 episodes based on the Frank Miller, Tom Wheeler graphic novel, which was a prequel slash revisionist history to the Arthurian legend, focusing on the woman who becomes the Lady of the Lake, who is played here by the great Catherine Langford from 13 Reasons Why. She is very good. Uh, and when the show is actually about her and about the women in the story, which it's supposed to be, it's 
pretty good, but it also spends a lot of time throwing in little Easter eggs for Arthurian legend fans and dealing with male characters. I mean, King Arthur's here. A bunch of other familiar people are here, but he's not King Arthur. He's just Arthur. And a lot of times it feels like it doesn't have the actual commitment slash connection to be about the thing it's supposed to be about, which is this female main character. I wish it were about that more. It's not bad, though. It's it's decent. You know, it's uh, it's it's more in the qualitative vein of Witcher, though, than Game of Thrones. So if uh, <laughs> as I as I say in my review and elsewhere, uh, it lacks the craziness that at times made Witcher entertaining, but it's also significantly less bad and amateurish at times than Witcher was. So you kind of got to take your choice there. Uh, the Alienist, I mean, God, does anyone even remember that The Alienist was a TV show? It, it's been two years since that aired. The second season is, once again, continuing with the second book in the series from Caleb Carr. And one thing that's notable is, and I had forgotten this because it's been 25 years since I've read the book, or 20 plus years, who knows? I had forgotten that it was a plot involving dead and kidnapped babies. And the way it plays out in the first few episodes is very similar to the plot line in Perry Mason. So you have to have a pretty fair appetite for horrible stories involving missing and murdered babies. And I don't know that it's really good enough to be worth it. On the other hand, I, I continue to think that Dakota Fanning is giving a really good performance in this show that nobody is talking about. So here, I'm talking about it. Dakota Fanning is really good in The Alienist. I think that's about all I have to say about that, though. So yeah, there are a few shows you can watch this weekend. It's a thing. But the best of them, United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. Definitely worth watching. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Crystal Moselle for a showrunner spotlight focusing on a hidden gem that is HBO's Betty. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always available on Twitter, so you can come say hi, unless, of course, Twitter decides to shut down random accounts again. In I'm still case. locked out, Dan. <laughs> I, <laughs> OK, fine. Then maybe we're not always available on Twitter because Twitter is weird as hell. So still and all, though, if you see us on Twitter, come say hi. That's totally fine. And maybe next week will be a good week for a mailbag segment. So you can always send us your questions at TV's top five at THR dot com. That's TV's top five. The number five at THR dot com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Stay safe, everyone. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.